0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
2: Hi, I'm Phil Craig and I'm Andrew Loney and together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Hello Andrew. Hello.
3: I'm very excited to have William Dalrymple with us today. Um, A big player as a a writer and of course also as a podcast host. I know. Aren't you a bit jealous? I'm a model. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to be able to repeat some of his successes. But I yeah. think he's going to be very interesting. I mean, he's he's not. It's not necessarily. I think what people are going to expect to hear, unless they've read The Anarchy.
2: Yes, well, that's right. We're we're going to be talking to William Dalrymple, who is a absolutely top historian. And as Andrew says, he's also got a rather successful podcast for the um the, is it the Goal Hanger Company, Carolineus Company that does yes. the rest is politics, yes. the rest is history and. By the way, guys, if you're listening, we are available. And we're quite cheap. Definitely cheaper than William. Promise you. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, let's talk about our podcast, which is also quite successful in its own little way. I know you love this bit. Here's some reviews. Actually, this one might make you think twice about our title. Entertaining, insightful, and clearly well-informed, says Merlin from Canada. So much better than the title. Eek. But later, change it um the two principles yes, it's, the two being an interesting
3: question the title in some yeah. ways it makes it stand out but um i think people are a little bit nervous that
2: it's going to be a bit down market which well, i hope we aren't i think we're perfectly judged mid-market anyway yeah. merlin says that we have charm and we have clarity I don't know. oh good do you have charm do you have clarity uh, well it's
3: our guests i think probably
2: have charm and clarity all we do is wind them up and set them off that is very true one more though, because I lo- I do love this. Linda B. You'll you'll like this one, Andrew. Linda B from Australia says, I've listened to all the podcasts and I've now bought two of Andrew's books. Gosh, brilliant. And I'm going to buy Andy Verity's book next payday.
3: Okay? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Well that's great. No, it's 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 interesting the synergy between the books and the, the podcasts. So it's um Uh, And of course, increasingly, people are going to audio and to podcasts to get their information rather than necessarily reading books a lot quicker.
2: It is a lot quicker. A lot quicker than reading The Anarchy. Yes, that's right. So William Paul is going to come on in a minute and is going to talk about the East India Company. Oh, God, really basic primer. This was a, um, well, he'll explain it all, really. But it was a a company from London that was operating in, well, I think from the 16th century, but became really, really important in the 18th century. And ended up basically running India and folding itself and India into the british Empire um and I don't know about you, I did history at university about the same time as you were there andrew yes we, we were yeah. were we taught this stuff I think we were a bit
3: no, no, I don't think we were uh, you know I think it was very much the Lady Bird book on Nelson and Wellington and <laughs> Clive and hastings um and you know this new perspective i think is is really important you know that history can be seen from all sorts of different angles
2: Mm. and william has been drawn into i'm sure he'll talk about this he's been drawn into a kind of debate online with various people critics and supporters about you know should britain be proud of its past or ashamed of its past or doesn't it really matter should we just try and understand it better
3: Yes, I think that's the important thing. I think it's just about knowledge. I mean, I've just read Sh- Shashi uh, Thoreau's book, which is quite critical of the British Empire, and I found it very persuasive. And again, it, I think that's rather exciting. You think you know some history, and then suddenly someone comes along and gives you a completely different perspective. Uh, and that's, I think, what we're hoping to do with all our podcasts, really.
2: Absolutely. Um, I remember, there's, I think it's in his introduction, actually, in the anarchy. He talks about this little castle in this tiny village in Wales. I'd never <laughs> heard of it. Somewhere in Powys. He says, William says, in this castle, there are more artefacts from the Mughal Empire than the biggest museum in Delhi, because they were stolen, basically, by the, some of these some civil servants slash soldiers who, who took yeah, the country but to, to,
3: to be fair, if they hadn't been stolen, they probably would have been lost. I mean, we might not have them. I mean, this is, of course, the argument with the Elgin marbles. I thought what was interesting in the book is, is they also... The, the the owner of the castle really didn't want anything to do with him, um, so it's. But no, I think there's a very interesting debate about restitution and where does where does it start and where does it stop. Mm. But we just wonders would would would, would we have the Parthenon now, or would it just have been re- used to rebuild other buildings?
2: Well, wow, who knows? Well, shall we ask William what he thinks? Yes, I think we should go over to the expert. There we go, counting down. Stand by hello 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 how are you i am very well i'm afraid andrew has had to leave us he's having a a technical meltdown in his westminster house (laughs) and i'm sure this you have higher standards on your own podcast gary Lineker would never put up with this but i'm afraid you're stuck with me william so i'm gonna go ahead with uh, like this Uh, well i'd like to if you would i'm already recording if that's okay with you Great, yeah, fight by me. Great. Well, that's really, look, first of all, thank you very much for joining us, t- taking out of uh, taking time away from your own excellent podcast. Um, no very good, um, thank you. And all the other things you do. Um, I think I've, in my introduction, I've already said I'm a massive fan, so I don't think you're going to get a grilling, <laughs> but more of a kind of a, a love letter. But <laughs> I wasn't expecting a grilling. <laughs> well, we are the, the scandal mongers. We like to think that we can be quite tough, but no, I mean. One of the things I'd love to do is a lot, some of our listeners um, are from America, Australia, other countries. They probably know very little about what the East India company was. Sure. A plenty of scandal there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I thought maybe I could start by saying, ask you just to sketch out, you know, the very basic history of how a company became a colonial power or sure. however you would put it.
1: It's one of the strangest stories in history. And Um, I spent 20 years writing this, and and I'm now onto something else. And as it recedes behind me, in a sense, just the stranger it is, the more I think about it, um, after 20 years of research, the weirder the whole story becomes. Because the East India Company was a company, a corporation. Uh, It was not the British government. Uh, And while it had a royal charter at the very beginning, uh, which it paid for, uh, which gave it the right to trade and the exclusive monopoly in Britain to trade with uh, any point east of the Cape of Good Hope, not just to trade, but also in its founding charter, the right to wage war uh, and to found settlements. And so from the very, very opening uh, uh, charter uh, what followed in a sense was anticipated it wasn't ever uh intended merely as a uh, uh as a as a kind of cash and carry or a, <laughs> no. or a sort of supermarket operation uh the the founding of settlements and colonies and uh, uh the need to fight for it was envisaged from the very beginning but what is astonishing is that when it was founded uh the the first discussions of 1599 which is the year that shakespeare was writing hamlet and julius caesar in the same city in london just 50 minutes walk from uh the globe would take you to uh the um the hall the founders hall where the east india company was voted into existence uh and at that point england because of course britain didn't exist then England's contribution to the world economy was the, fair, the the figures are fought over. And of course, they're not solid trade figures like we'd have today. But between about three and seven percent of the world's economy was generated by England in 1599. Now, at that date, between 30 and 40 percent of the world's economy was generated by what is now India. Uh, and specifically the Mughal uh, Mughal Empire, which doesn't follow quite the lineaments of modern India. It it, it spreads right across Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan and doesn't include, at this point, uh, southern India. But uh, there's no comparison in the size and power of the two empires.
2: That's extraordinary. Uh, I'm sure most people don't know that, actually. They would probably think that Britain or England at that stage was a substantial power but you are you're, you're, you're it, comparing an it was a, to
1: the it was a, it was, a, it, was a, it was a top second division country right. in 1599 it was way behind spain and portugal who were enriched by silver and gold coming out of the new world who already had substantial empires across the whole of latin, what's now latin america <coughs> had already <coughs> conquered most of the inca and aztec empires and uh, uh, it was certainly much, much poorer than Italy, which was buzzing with uh, capitalist endeavour and sophistication with uh, much more sophisticated banking networks. Uh, And even Holland, which was a new country in 1599, uh, newly freed from Spanish control, um, was considerably richer per capita uh, and had far more sophisticated financial systems, had a stock exchange, which uh, England didn't have at this point. And um, very very sophisticated banking techniques and so uh, england was was uh not at the bottom by any means because it had a very successful wool trade but it was you know top second division I, you know belgium in modern terms perhaps <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh which is of course is famously what uh curzon predicted britain would become again if uh, if it lost its empire um uh, and uh, uh So, And yet it's not even just, you know, England versus the Mughals. It's one English company in one street in London. And in, well, around the time of the Battle of Plassey, the Battle of Plassey being the the first uh, battle which really uh, uh, the English showed that they could take on uh, uh, Mughal armies, Uh, even at that stage in 1765, which is 150 years after the founding of the company, um, it's got a tiny little office, five windows wide, a That's century a into its existence. It's only got 35 people in that head office. And at the time of the battle, plastic again, 150 years into existence, it only has 250 white guys in India. So how on earth does this company operating out of something not much bigger, probably than your house, or maybe the next door has put together, uh, uh, Take over the richest country in the world, which at its peak has a million men under arms, formidable army that, that would defeat anything, and uh, and gave you know good to the Persians in battle, who were the other great power at the time. The Safavid Persia was an enormous powerful country. Uh, so how did it happen? And the answer is bizarrely uh, that it did it by borrowing capital from Indian merchants, particularly Hindu and Jain Marwari merchants, uh, who were uh, the the great banking dynasties uh, uh, of India, and using that money to buy Indian mercenaries. So at all points, uh, East India Company battles were uh, were fought with armies that were never really less than 90% Indian.
2: So the Indians were paying for their own conquest.
1: The Indians affected well, not the Indians, because uh, Indians. It, it, it was some Indian bankers uh, realized that their best interest lay with the city company. Why? Because a traditional Indian uh, leader uh, would regard bankers as as annoying irritations, uh, and if they asked for their money back in, uh, uh you know, or, or an increased interest, or in any way, kind of. Um, uh, crossed the ruler, they were likely to be hung upside down by their heels and beaten, which is what happens to a lot of them uh, in 1857 in, in, in the Great Indian Uprising. While the East India Company, while you know, full of scoundrels and crooks and uh, and guilty of asset stripping and looting everything it could, was a commercial company which understood the importance of paying its loans back on time with interest. Uh, uh, and and doing so promptly, uh, and therefore you have this straight as the Mughal Empire disintegrates, and that's the key point. The moment that the the East India Company comes to power is the moment that the uh, there's this extraordinary implosion of the Mughal Empire, and this enormous empire which has spread all over uh, northern India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. This huge chunk of land uh, shatters. Almost overnight, in 1739, when the Persians break in, uh, steal, uh, defeat the the, uh, uh, the, the mogul uh, emperor, Shah, uh, sorry, Muhammad Shah Rangila, who's a kind of cross-dressing fop who uh, who hasn't got the slightest interest in warfare, and he's taken on by a small but professional army um, uh, led by this sort of uh, self-made Persian. Uh, general who who has the latest in military technology, the swivel gun that can pierce Mughal armor. Uh, the Battle of Karnal uh, in 1739 he defeats the Mughals, marches into Delhi with the Mughal emperor captive and eight weeks later leaves with 80,000 wagons filled with gold and jewels. Everything the Mughals have looted from everywhere else over the previous century and a half is taken in one go. The British did their best to loot India but they arrived a bit late. The best stuff had gone already to Persia. <laughs>
2: Uh, with, it, I think, with, I think you say in your book one of the very first Indian words that came into common usage in this country, in England, was loot.
1: Yes, lootna l- is a is a, a Hindustani and an Urdu word which means to loot. Uh, it means to plunder. Um, lootna uh, and, and it enters English in the mid eighteenth century to describe the kind of things that were being brought back by the likes of Robert Clive in in vast quantities. And and yeah, it's, it's I mean the, it's very interesting what words do enter the English language at this period from India, and there either tend to be things that are connected with textiles, such as cumber buns, pajamas, uh, uh, and so on. or they're all to do with <laughs> plunder, <laughs> such as loot. Um, and occasionally, occasionally, little bits of architecture. the The humble bungalow uh, is, in fact, a bungalow comes from the word, same word as Bangladesh. Um, but uh, your, your your pen portrait of Clive is so interesting to me, because I was
2: part of that generation, I guess, raised a little, still a little bit under the year of victories. the Seven Years' War, which I thought was a war between nations, not necessarily with companies. And Clive was up there with Wolfe and, and with Nelson, with Wellington as some of the great British um, military heroes that built the empire, et cetera, et cetera. But he comes across as a kind of sort of psychopathic kind of gangster, really um
1: i don't think you win wars by being you know a soft cuddly toy uh, a, t- a teddy bear um nelson was a little i, bit crazy. I was fasc- i was fascinated by clive clive is exactly as you say he is ruthless violent calculating uh but there's absolutely no question he's a, a very remarkable man and he wins every battle he ever fights not just on the battlefield but later in the boardroom, when he returns to London, and still later as an MP in Parliament, he has this sort of extraordinary dark charisma where he can size up an opponent, see their weak points, and, uh, and work uh, some surprising maneuver on them. And, and in battle, that's what he does. 18th century warfare in India was as much a matter of negotiation as actual fighting. And, you know, two armies line up, uh, envoys go between them. Quite, a lot of, quite often, the battle doesn't take place at all. It's like a chess game, mm. and some solution is found. Clive, who was a kind of thug from Market Drayton, he'd been sent away to the, uh, to the East India Company because he kept, uh, age, I think it's age 16 and 17, running protection rackets in, in, in the village, <laughs> threatening to break the windows or shopkeepers or divert the, 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 the town's river into their shops you know, if they didn't pay him off. And so his uncle, who in despair, first tried to get him to the church. Of course, that doesn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> And then and then sends him off to the East India Company, age 16, where he, you know, he 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 falls off the back of the boat. He's such a kind of mess and, and, and nearly drowns off Brazil um, and arrives without any luggage in India and tries to commit suicide. The whole thing is a kind of catastrophe. But having proved to be a completely hopeless chartered accountant, uh this is the period when the conflict with the French uh, uh is just beginning. And he is very, very good at fighting. And what he does is that he just breaks. Every rule and rather than, you know, a face to face conflict in mid, in the midday sun, two armies lined up against each other. Clive is brilliant at doing night attacks, attacking in fog at 430 in the morning. Um, during the middle of thunderstorms he has this incredible ability to completely unnerve whoever's fighting for him even if they have an army 10 times his size so he's a very remarkable ingenious man but is he a, a you know a national hero no because a as you say he's not working for the the national interest as such although he has also like the company itself got a charter from the crown and he has this strange sort of um uh two-footed or two-faced allegiance whereby he is uh primarily the the uh the agent of the east india company but he also has uh, a kind of special commission in the army which is unusual Uh, so he's a complicated fish unlike most of the east india company soldiers who are straightforwardly working for the company uh clive has uh sent out on the eve of the seven-year war for that conflict also has a, a a british army rank um but he's—I mean, I—he's I, he, exactly the sort of figure for a writer who's a gift because uh, he is—he's uh, such a fascinating figure. He's—you know—he's in a sense he's my my Lord Voldemort uh, mm. in this in, in my book, The Anarchy, um, because he well,
2: you, you he write just, you, you write with a certain amount of righteous anger about what, the but book, I also write with a certain amount English. of admiration. I have to oh, say, you do you know, yeah, absolutely.
1: it's both both of them. Do, do you uh, think and, uh,
2: do you think the English Clive and the company were were any worse? Than any other faction who are operating in India at the time uh, had the French, for example, gained the upper hand, would it have been better for the Indians? Or what, is it just you know it'll be no? I, mean, I think another. there's
1: every reason to imagine any other non-Indian force would have been just as ruthless, and and I, and, I, and no way do I uh, try and pretend that, for example, the Marathas, who are from the hills above Bombay, modern Maharashtra, uh, you know, loot, pillage, and destroy Bengal. Uh, and and to this day, uh, Bengali grandmothers whisper to their children, if you don't uh, go to sleep now, uh, the Bargis will get you, which was the name for the Marathas. Ditto the Afghans who are coming down during this period, looting, killing uh, people in Afghanistan, uh, were horribly ruthless and, and, and murderous. And so I'm not pretending that we're living in a world of angels and Clive is a single dark shade on the edge of it. No, he, he's very much man of his times. But the crucial difference is that the Moguls and the Marathas, uh, you know, took their wealth and they built stuff in India, uh, and uh, what they would plunder from one part of India, they would they would hoard and spend in another part of India. So it would all go round and round. The difference mm. with the East India Company is that for uh, hundred and fifty, and then uh, particularly the first hundred and fifty years, but uh, sorry, I'll start again. The difference with the East India Company is that from the period of Clive from 1760s for a century, from 1765 uh, to about seven. the difference with the East India Company uh, is that uh, from the Battle of Plassey in 1756 till the outbreak of what we call the Indian Mutiny, the First War of Independence in 1857, which is almost exactly a century later, the East India Company is sending all its winnings back. To Britain. So Britain, because this is now Britain, it's not England. The, the Union has taken place. Um, Moves in that century from being bottom uh, bottom first division or, or top second division uh, country so to Champions the league. top of the league because not only is, you know, vast quantities of wealth being uh, shipped, every ship from a prostrate subjected India, the richest country in the world just has a mass transfer of its jewels and goods and gold to Britain, which is why across the country, this, you know, Britain is still dotted with gorgeous country houses from this period. When you go, you know, uh, to some lovely national trust property with a gorgeous Georgian park and have your scones in the tea room. Uh, the chances are that the money has come either from the East India company. Which means some looting and asset stripping and plundering and, and victories won over, uh, uh over, uh, post Mughal armies in India. Or it's come from the slave trade, which is operating at the same time, uh, out of the West Coast. So ports such as Bristol, Liverpool and so on, Manchester, uh, are, 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 uh, enriching themselves massively and transforming this, the, the nature of the country. Uh, with this astonishing and uh, and vile trade, whereby uh, the Royal Africa Company initially, then once it's collapsed, just millions of independent slavers transport twelve million black Africans from from the coast again. You know, uh, I, I, I uh, anticipating the, the what about tree? Yes, you know, they're buying them from. Af- Black African rulers. There's the preceding Arabian and uh, and Arab slave trade. All that's quite true, but the numbers are different. It's yes, industrialized it, it was, scale. It was,
2: it was perfect. It took something and yeah, made right. it made um, it on an entirely different scale. To, and, you, uh, to, to give you give the figures of...
1: for the slave trade, was diverted with the syndicate. Just there, this is something which you whenever you raise it on Twitter or anything else, you know, immediately comes back. What about what about the blacks? What about the what about the Benin kings? What about the Dahomey kings? What about the Arab slave traders? To give you an idea, there is. In the 17th century, uh, a massive uh, Barbary Coast slaving operation coming out of ports like Algiers and Salih. And uh, pirates are raiding places like Stepney in East London and Cornwall and Dublin mm-hmm. and the Dingle Peninsula and taking people off. But the kind of figures, according to Nabil Matar, who's the Arab reading historian that's actually gone into the archives and looked at the accounts of all this stuff, the numbers are in the tens of thousands. So that, you know, in the, in the course of a century, we might possibly reach a hundred thousand captives in North Africa. Uh, some earlier researchers had given much larger figures, but they seem to be based entirely on, on supposition and, and guesswork. Well, if you, there, there are, there are documents that, that document the, the figures and Nabil's gone in, got them out. And he's calculated that it's for, for Britain, it's probably about 10, 20,000 for Europe, maybe a hundred thousand. The numbers we're talking with the, the the middle passage from West Africa is twelve million. Extraordinary.
2: Now, people there were people, um, uh, as you know, who thought that it was outrageous and campaigned against slavery, and eventually it, it was it was abolished. Now, were there similar people who looked at what was happening in India and said, "This is wrong, this is immoral, this is scandalous," or was it just, "Oh, you know, with one,
1: let's take all of the loot we can and enjoy being top dog." One of the most encouraging things I found was that there was a huge amount of anger in Britain, but only once they knew what was really going on, mm. uh, because the East India Company had a monopoly, as I said. Uh, and you couldn't just, you know, go to the Indian High Commission, and get, get a get a visa and, and turn up and wander around Agra and, and, and then report back on what the East India Company uh, was doing. No one could go to India from Britain without the East India Company taking them. And there were various attempts to break that monopoly, which resulted in those people being arrested, sometimes themselves enslaved, in fact, and, uh, uh, and certainly punished and, uh, and put in prison. And so it's only really when um, the most awful thing which happens in the Age of Clive uh, takes place, which is the Great Bengal Famine. Uh, and that is in 1772. Now, to put this in context, there have been famines throughout Indian history. Um, some some Indian historians argue against this but I, I, from what I've seen and what I've read it seems completely clear that all the early English accounts and uh, early traveller accounts of, of India contain uh, a picture of a very hierarchical society where the poor are often starving and the rich are very rich already uh, and for example Edward Terry who is Sir Thomas Rowe the first uh, <laughs> ambassador from the crown to go to India he describes you know, a a landscape of famine uh, as he moves in from Gujarat to the Kortanagra. But uh, what happens in most situations like that is that there, there is an awareness in India that famine is a is a likelihood if a monsoon fails, and and rulers prepare for it, and they and they, they they build granaries full of you know like in the Bible with the the seven good years and the seven bad years, and Joseph telling Pharaoh to to put aside grain. That's what happens. That's you know yeah. it's, it's a basic prerogative of a ruler to look after his people and and prepare for the inevitability of, of of a bad harvest one year sooner or later. So there are granaries, and there are also a system in place whereby people get employed. Uh, in these lean years, when the monsoon fails and there's no food, uh, and so they, you know, they they will build some spectacular temple or a, or a tomb or a ashurkana in the, in the case of the rulers of Lucknow, which still stands. The most amazing building in Lucknow is famine work. Um, and the East India Company, which is newly in charge of Bengal, just doesn't understand any of this stuff. All these guys are are, are you know twenty year olds. Uh, they go out at sixteen. Uh, And they've just conquered the country and they're trying to get as much money as they can and retire as early as possible to to ship it back home and become an MP and buy a nice country house and and enjoy a life in Oxfordshire or uh, the Cotswolds uh, or the Welsh borders in the case of Clive. And uh, so when the famine takes place, there is no grain uh, brought out of granaries and there is no employment created. And as a result, as mean, there are huge arguments among historians about the figures. And the numbers vary between one and five million casualties, but basically a a significant proportion, perhaps a quarter of the population of Bengal starved to death. Mm -hmm. And the result and the reaction of the company is not to issue soup kitchens or create work or issue grain, all of which is available upstream. And some of the local rulers in the same area, you know, develop fleets of ships which which carry grain from, from from places where there'd be a perfectly good harvest in land or to the west of India. Uh, they don't do that. Instead, what they do is they send their sepoys, their mercenary army out into the villages to gather taxes at the point of a bayonet, And anyone who doesn't pay up, even if their family's starving to death, is hung. So suddenly, as well as the corpses all over the the fields and reports of cannibalism and all the rest of it, and people selling their children into slavery and and, and selling off their their plows and their cattle and and anything else that's still alive, um, you have gibbets set up at every uh, crossroads with people hanging who haven't haven't been able to pay up. So that, at the end of the first year of the famine, uh, when the annual general meeting of the company takes place, because behind... All the you know, the palaces and the armies and the ships and everything else, there is a share price, uh, just like any other company, and, and an annual general meeting where the shareholders meet and the directors present their accounts. You know, it's all very weirdly familiar in the mid eighteenth century. And at the annual general meeting in seventeen seventy two, the shareholders are told by a, a, a pleased looking director, a board of directors, that despite a famine, um, taxes have been gathered in full. And the, the shareholders are so thrilled because they've been hearing reports that uh, uh, things are awry, that they vote themselves an increased dividend from 10 to 12.5%. Oh, God. And the next year, I mean, this is all, you know, they all go home happy and, 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 and buy themselves whatever they, you know, a treat uh, with, with their uh, extended dividend. But, of course, this is not sustainable. And what has happened, effectively, is the company has strangled the goose that was laying the golden egg, and, and Bengal is laid waste. And the following year, they can't gather any taxes and rumors begin to spread and banks begin to collapse and 13 banks go down like dominoes across Europe, people that have invested too heavily in the company. And this is the point that the British government steps in because the East India Company is already too big to fail, unlike Lehman Brothers, because it controls about half British imports at this point. Uh, And uh, they step in and they by a 50% share of the company, which is where suddenly the British government gets involved in what up to this point has been a corporate venture. Um, so
2: Do this, they though, introduce any kind of a more decent administration? Any not fairer? at all. No. Nope.
1: Uh, I, I mean, they, they, they promote a particularly uh, indophile and, 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 and rather attractive character to, to run it, who's the, the much maligned Warren Hastings, and, and he's one of the better figures, much, much better than, than Clive. But uh, th- there's still no sense at this point that this is anything other than a money-minting exercise. There's no, there's no rhetoric of what you get later with the Victorian period. Of, you know, we're building railways, we're building roads, we're building ports. When the, the, uh, Warren Hastings is brought to court, the, the, the prosecution uh, under Burke make this point. They say, you know, that, uh, you've built nothing. <laughs> you've just extracted uh, and this is this is one of the main arguments against the company. But this was all a, a long answer to your original question um, about about Clive's reputation. And this is the point for the very first time in 1772, when uh, there are enough whistleblowers within East India Company ranks that for the first time you get them writing in the Spectator, in the Gentleman's Magazine, and so on anonymous accounts of the Bengal famine with corpses piled up outside their doors and you know, hundreds of dead bodies in every street, whole villages wiped out uh, a, a, you know, a handful of, of emaciated figures in, in major towns. And this stuff is published uh, and there for the first time, you get an understanding. So the reaction in London uh, is that there's a play put on at the, uh, in the Haymarket where Clive is satirized as Lord Vulture uh presiding over a, a pile of corpses and you get exactly the same reaction as, as you would get to some you know british cock up abroad like the uh like the kind of invasion of iraq uh that you get today you get a lot of outraged people uh, a lot of a lot of righteous indignation horace warpole writes you know in his diaries about how dreadful this man clive is and you know he's outdone the conquistadors cortes and so on uh in his brutality um and that is the first moment, in a sense, that the British public really get a glimpse of what's going on in India. Up to this point, all they've seen is a bunch of people leaving age 16 and coming back with vast fortunes, often as, as, as 10 years later. And everyone has suspected that there must be some dirty dealings going on, right? You know, there's a suspicion of these syndicate companies, the same way that people were suspicious of the merchant bankers in the 1980s and, you know, all those sort of rah rah uh, stockbrokers driving Porsches into restaurants in Mayfair and, uh, and and this sort of thing, all kind of Burlington uh, uh, club um, uh, sort of uh, uh, antics in Oxford. Uh, but this is the first time that you know real material is, is put out and published in the public eye. And crucially, I mean, just, just to finish, just to finish this, this point because it's really important, it also reaches America, uh, and the fear of the East India Company, uh, and the, the, the fear that the might that the East India Company might be let loose on, on the United, oh, oh sorry, on the on, on the, the American colonies, not the United States yet, on the American colonies, uh, is one of the main reasons that when the uh, uh, Great Revolution breaks out in America. It is East India Company tea that is poured into Boston Harbor at I the never knew Boston that. Tea Party. People don't connect this. Uh, when the East India Company is is short of cash, they their monopoly, which is exclusively to trade eastwards, is extended so that they're allowed to trade uh, and sell their tea directly in the Americas. And that's where the tea tax. That's where the Boston Tea Party. Well, all that, and it's against the background of these h- horrifying reports in all the newspapers and magazines, which are reaching the American colonies, they're read avidly by, by all the patriots, Samuel Adams and everyone, um, about what the East India Company has done and the fear that the East India Company is now going to be allowed to do in the Americas what it's done in Bengal. That's so, yes, a, a very, very long answer to your question. No, is, well, it's is, very, there any, it's, is there any resistance to this? It, there is. It's, People it's are, a, are aware it a, of it. Perhaps, yeah. perhaps
2: possibly one of the reasons there's a revolution in America. One minute left. It's a very quick answer. You spend a lot of time in India, um, and you seem to be made very welcome there you must sometimes feel a little bit embarrassed just talking about what people
1: who look and sounded like us did to that great place well i'm a scot and i you know i actually grew up um as andrew did in in scotland and you know i in my primary school i studied at the first war of independence so that was that was robert the bruce and uh, i was told in my cradle stories about what the redcoats did after culloden and and the raping of the highlands and the and the highland clans so I I think I've I've been lucky in that I've been quite a good position to write this in that, you know, I'm British, I'm from Britain, my father was a colonial soldier, uh, and I'm from the establishment. And yet I also have grown up always with an awareness that, uh, you know, the Redcoats could be murderous, murdering, raping, looting bastards who would destroy a society. And so it's not difficult for me to hold those two things together and to try and make sense of them. Uh, And I think that exactly that, the the, the fact that I am from this country, but aware that unbelievable horrors are possible, uh, has given me a good head start in producing a narrative that could be digested both by Indians and by the Brits, and which doesn't appear... Uh, to Brits as being massively woke and um, uh, and coruscatingly right on, uh, but presents facts, unpleasant facts about the darker side of our past, while also being palatable to an Indian audience who who can also see that you know that there's a difference between Warren Hastings and Clive, and that while well, you know Clive is a uh, is this very sort of dark racist figure, Warren Hastings speaks perfect Bengali Persian hindustani builds granaries uh, and that there are nuances so i think if you present your material you know do your research and present your materials honestly and you're not either a hand-wringing liberal or a kind of massive uh, nationalist and just try and establish a narrative with characters who are living and breathing from their letters and quote them people can see that you're being fair-minded well, you, uh, you, 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 uh,
2: the clock is ticking. You are you, Your book is amazing. I couldn't recommend it more. The Anarchy, and indeed your podcast. and I'm sorry on behalf of Andrew that he couldn't listen to this. The
1: podcast we should spell it. out. Uh, for if you are, as presumably you are, if you're listening to this, a podcast fan, I do a podcast with Anita Allen called uh, Empire Pod, uh, which you will find in all.
2: And it's very good. And thanks for podcast. your time. We have to go. Many Thank you so you. much. All thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Andrew, I'm where so- were you? <laughs> I'm
3: so sorry I couldn't join you for that. Uh, we've got building work here, and I had to move and use a laptop, which didn't seem to be working. So uh, you had a solo, uh, and it was extremely good, and very interesting.
2: Um, he? He's a very th- wise and interesting person, isn't he? And he, I, I love his voice too. He's got a great broadcasting voice. Yes,
3: very, very fluent. I mean, I thought what was so fascinating was was the fact how small the company was. Uh and and yet, and here it was with this huge empire, ten times as in terms of its turnover, and just how it was able to 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 manipulate that and take over. Um,
2: yeah, and, and I absolutely, you know, I always thought. Clive was up there with Nelson and um, and Wolfe and Wellington. I mean, a lot of these people are also kind of crazy in different ways. But I didn't quite understand just quite how kind of like sort of ruthless and selfish the whole thing was. But maybe that's just me being um, sort of naive. Well,
3: it's very much, yes, for his business. We can see parallels now. It's interesting looking at the reviews. He has a lot of reviews on Amazon pretty much all five star, but there are a few detractors who point out the things he's missing or that he has a certain bias. I mean, some people say that he, he has it in for Clive. Um, so, but I mean, that's always going to happen on Amazon, particularly when you have quite so many reviews, I think he's 6,000. Um,
2: well, I mean, it's like, it is an age old story. Or can we really judge historical characters by the standards of today? Well, if, you know, what, what other standards do we have? So of course we have to try. We also have to try to understand what, what what world they lived in and how they saw the world and what was normal, what had been normal, you know, in the centuries before they came upon the stage. And, and, and building empires and stealing stuff from other people had been what human beings had done since they got out of the caves. And, and that well, includes I mean, people in India, of course, which he said. I
3: mean, should we be judging them as historians or should we just be really reporting um yes. I suppose the selection of evidence will will give some sense of of what we're trying to say. But I think you're absolutely right. We can't, we have to place everything in context, but um, we have to see it also in the perspective of our own values
2: and maybe universal values. Yes, well, it was like that great conversation with Geoffrey Weecroft we had the other day about Churchill. You know, I think it's perfectly possible to admire some of the things that the man did that were truly great and truly important, but also, you know, be really shocked uh, at his attitudes, his, his reactionary opinions, of racism—you know—we can't yeah. avoid these difficult facts of history, and it'd it be crazy to um, to understand yeah. the, the man and the, and the past in full. No, what a great what a great episode, and we are, we we've got loads more good stuff coming. Do you want to give us a a, a quick preview of who's up next?
3: Well, I think you've found someone for next week, and this is a story about a, a, an Australian war hero who's been found to have. Uh, committed some war crimes. Um And then we have, I think, Martin Rosenheim, possibly, talking about Rosenbaum, freedom information. Yep. Rosenbaum, who's a great expert on freedom of information. Uh, and uh, I think we'll be looking at some of the issues there and whether FOI is working or not, and maybe how it should be reformed. Uh, and then um, we may be talking to the political editor of Unheard, possibly about Boris Johnson. That may be something coming up. Uh, I can't think what else we've got. Oh, well, um, always seen, very varied.
2: We've just seen a, you know, a pr- prime minister leaving politics, partly, maybe largely as a result of scandals. Um, yes, and a life a life, of a well, a life of, a, marked by scandals of yeah, all
3: kinds. And, and, and doesn't, doesn't seem to have affected his career until perhaps now. So this may be, be the end of Boris mm. Johnson.
2: And our, you know, our little cause for getting more, you know, openness and fighting against the over curation of history. Um, a lot of people are talking about it now, not necessarily because of us. It, it seems to be of the moment, I think. And, and the, the thing we did with Andy Verity last 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 episode, um, a lot of people have, have been speaking now, in, even in the House of Lords. Somebody said it's it's time for for more honest inquiry into what really happened, and this isn't something from the distant past; something from fifteen years ago.
3: Yep. And actually the newspapers calling and indeed MPs calling for reexamination of the case. So, uh, that's rather exciting. Not, not entirely due to the podcast. Um, but it's good to be, to be carried along with that and to see some change happening.
2: Well, I think we are, you know, if on the right side of history, I think, and I think it's, it's a long, long past time for a much more open. And I know Martin Rosenbaum, when he comes on, we'll talk about this, a much more open approach to, to justice and inquiry. Right. Well, we can <laughs> feel quite pleased with ourselves. Yes, we can, and and um, let's just see what other comments come for next week. All right, well, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you very much, Andrew, and try, try to get, d- d- tell the builders to go away next program.
3: <laughs> I think I'll replace my laptop. Okay. <laughs> Maybe people will prefer it, <laughs>
2: just you on your own. I don't think so. Let's crowdfund Andrew a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, until <laughs> Linda next week. B., please buy more of Andrew's books. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye.
3: Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a Podcast World production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.